Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Subscribe to Unchained on YouTube, where you can watch the videos of me and my guests. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases until the end of September. Download the Crypto.com app today. T-Quorum is a weekly virtual series about all things Tezos. Every Wednesday, join thought leaders, innovators, and blockchain enthusiasts for presentations about the latest advancements that help the ecosystem grow together. Sign up and learn more about the virtual series at tquorum.com. Today's guest is Camilla Russo, author of The Infinite Machine, How an Army of Crypto Hackers is Building the Next Internet with Ethereum, and founder of The Defiant. Welcome, Camilla. Hi, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. I just want to say, first of all, congrats on the publication of your book. That must be so exciting. It is. I'm, I'm so happy with it. So happy with all the feedback. It's been amazing. So let's start with your background. You've done so much in crypto, but I don't know if people really know how you got started. So how did you come to be covering this space? Sure. So, well, before being full-time crypto with the Defiant and the Infinite Machine, I was a reporter at Bloomberg News for around eight years. Um, I started in an internship in New York. Then I went to Argentina for over four years then Madrid and then back to New York. And in Argentina, I was there in uh, Cristina Fernandez's second term. And at that time, she imposed really harsh currency controls and inflation, as always in Argentina, was, you know, in the double digits. Um, and so I was covering Argentine markets and how people were protecting against inflation and currency controls. And that's how I came across Bitcoin for the first time in 2013. So I wrote a story for Bloomberg on, you know, how Argentines were using um, this digital currency to protect against inflation. And after that, I was like always really interested in crypto. You know, to me, it was like a really powerful concept. Um, this idea of having a, a parallel and independent um, financial and monetary system that, you know, especially after living in Argentina and living through all that, it made a lot of sense to me. So I always kind of kept track of it. Um, but then it was back in New York in 2017 when I started really covering it again. Um, and focusing more on it. So um, at this time, I was at uh, Bloomberg's Markets Live blog, which is kind of um, uh, a live feed of market analysis. And I mostly covered emerging markets, but um, I had the freedom of, to write whatever looked interesting. And 2017 was obviously huge for crypto. So I started writing about crypto and then started writing for like the general wire. wire because Bloomberg um, didn't have like dedicated cryptocurrency reporters or a dedicated crypto team. So I became kind of the de facto crypto reporter at the time. And that kind of, you know, dragged me into space. Um, I had a front row 
view of the huge bubble of 2017. And I just, you know, was fascinated by it and kind of never left after that. <laughs> and earlier when you said that having lived through the currency controls in Argentina, that that was part of the reason that you got fascinated with Bitcoin. What was it like living through that? You know, what did you experience and why was it that you felt that Bitcoin uh, was related to what was happening then? It was really interesting to to be living through that because I'm I'm Chilean and in Chile the situation was very different. Uh, Chile is a much more conservative country, like fiscally and uh, in its monetary policy. Um, like nothing ever happens there. Uh, the, the peso is pretty, the Chilean peso is pretty stable. So coming to Argentina, where um, you know there were all, all these like uh, stimulus and like money printing. And, and just like very populist um, policies with with the Kirchners, and and just living through um, currency controls like firsthand because I was I was earning in Argentine pesos like Bloomberg uh, paid journalists there in, in their local currency. I mean they do that in every every local bureau. You get paid in obviously the country's currency. So I got paid in Argentine pesos, and when I first got to Argentina. Um, the first thing I was told was, as soon as you get your salary, change it to dollars um, because of the like the huge inflation. So what happens with inflation in practice is that you know you get say a hundred uh, Argentine pesos in in January, and that uh, lets you buy a certain amount of stuff. But then at the end of the year, you can buy much less with the same hundred pesos. So effectively, you become poorer by holding. Um, your local currency. So that's why people uh, in Argentina and countries with really high inflation are always seeking a more stable currency, and that's usually U.S. dollars. So that's what I was doing. As soon as I got uh, my salary in pesos, I exchanged it to dollars. And then one day, I think it was like just a, like two or a couple of days after Cristina Fernandez got reelected, I was at the Bloomberg office kind of covering this announcement where she said, um, you know, now U.S. dollar purchases are prohibited. And I was like, okay, like I covered it. And, but then I went to my bank account uh, to see if like actually I, I wasn't able to trade pesos for dollars anymore. And that option was just gone <laughs> from, wow. from my bank. So I really kind of lived that. And then I was like stuck with Argentine pesos and having to go to the black market. Um, and the, like the, the U.S. dollar black market in Argentina is like, it's it's illegal, but it's like everyone does it. Like everyone is using it, um, and it's just it's it's just crazy. So people were were doing like all all these um, like schemes to try to get access to dollars. Like they would go overnight to Uruguay to Punta del Este uh, and and like cash uh, casino chips for dollars and like do all this uh, <laughs> like crazy stuff, including like Bitcoin. So. Um, and, and yeah, like just seeing how frustrating it is to have a government dictate what you can and can't do with your own money and, you know, banks uh, like prohibiting uh, and, and enforcing those those laws and, and regulations. It was just amazing to me. Like it just didn't make any sense. It was like, this is my money. I earned it. Like, why are they telling me I can't buy dollars with it? Like. Especially because the reason why 
the business being devalued is their fault. So why do I have to pay for that? <laughs> right. Um, it just felt like so insane. And so, yeah, it's this, the ability to have a hedge against crazy governments and irresponsible policies, um, it's just, was just groundbreaking. And yeah, I think that's what Bitcoin enables. So, but something that's so fascinating to me is that I, obviously can see how your experience in Argentina would get you interested in Bitcoin. And I've seen this, uh, pretty much the same story happen with people like Juancis Casares and Michael Casey, who lived in Argentina. It just feels like, you know, that Mariona yeah. Conti, everybody who has experience with Argentina somehow finds their way to the crypto <laughs> space. But why do you think that you instead ended up focusing on Ethereum rather than Bitcoin? Yeah, so um, I think like the reason is, is, is a, a, like a practical one, uh, as well as a, like not ideological one, but like um, a, one that's like focused on Ethereum itself. So the practical reason was that end of 2017, um, I thought what happened this year is crazy and it needs to be documented. Like this is an incredible space. Um, and I had always wanted to write a book. Uh, a nonfiction book. So I was like on the lookout for like what interesting stories I could tell. And so crypto was to me like that opportunity to tell an interesting uh, story in a book. And so I just, you know, started thinking what's the most interesting story in crypto that hasn't been told. And the story of Bitcoin had been told before um, really well, I, I thought with digital gold and other books, and it was just more widely known. But Ethereum, you know, people didn't really know much much about it uh, beyond, you know, it's a platform for ICOs. Um, there, there was no history of Ethereum, uh, which was crazy. Uh, it was the second biggest cryptocurrency. It fueled much of the craziness of 2017, yet nobody knew much about it and how it got created and started. So that's, that's the reason I started... Um, looking at writing a book on Ethereum. And then, you know, after my kind of in initial research, I, I realized it, it is really a, a book worthy project because while Bitcoin tries to um, do, you know, peer to peer money, uh, Ethereum wants to do peer to peer everything, like the, go beyond just the peer to peer transfer of money with smart contracts. Um, so to me, it was, you know, whether Ethereum meant out uh, winning or uh, succeeding in, in its goal of becoming like the world computer, it's still, you know, it's still won in, in, in the sense that it was the first to, to, to try this, to, to push uh, blockchain technology forward. And so I thought that was a story worth telling. And at some point, you also left Bloomberg. Why, when was that and why did you decide to leave Bloomberg? So I left Bloomberg January uh, 2019, and I left in part because I really wanted to focus on, on finishing my book. So Bloomberg gave me a few months of book leave, and that was amazing, um, and I'm, I'm really grateful to them. But then, you know, beginning of 2019 was when I had to go back to, to Bloomberg and do like my full-time reporting job, and I still hadn't finished writing the book. And so... I just like couldn't see how I would be able to do both well, and I didn't want to delay publishing my book. Um, so that was like one side of the decision, and then the other side was just, 
you know, I, I was there for eight years. Um, I, I covered so many different markets. I was at uh, three or, or four uh, different Bloomberg offices, if you count like some time I was also in the Chile office. So I had like a lot of experience uh, covering financial news for Bloomberg. And I just thought it's time to, to do something else. Like I, um, I was excited to, to freelance, to maybe start something on my own. Like I left without a clear idea of what I would do after finishing the book, but I knew I wanted a little bit more uh, freedom to, to explore other things after like all that time at Bloomberg. And so you did start talking a little bit about your book, but why don't we just dive into the particulars? What is your book about? So yeah, my book is uh, on, it focuses on the history of Ethereum, um, especially the early days. So how uh, Vitalik came up with the, the idea of Ethereum, how he inspired uh, a group of very diverse uh, characters from different walks of life to follow him in this journey of building this this new platform, um, the challenges they faced, uh, how they overcame them, um, and then uh, you know the, the the 2017 boom and and bust uh, in 2018, and then also I I, I come to pretty much um, a present day kind of hinting about like the future of of Ethereum with DeFi and and Web3, but really the focus is on the, the early days and, and how, um, how Ethereum got, got started and, and, and launched. And so what would you say were the most pivotal moments in Ethereum's history? First, at, at, the, at the beginning of Ethereum history, there was this tension on whether, like on the very kind of soul of Ethereum, uh, whether you know, it should be a for-profit company or a nonprofit foundation. Um, fueling development of like this open uh, public blockchain. And so I think the moment, the, the decision to, to make it a, a non-profit foundation obviously really defined uh, Ethereum going forward. Um, so that was definitely a, a pivotal moment. Another, another key moment I think was um, the pre-sale, ICO, pre-mine, however you, you want to call it, you know, the decision to structure the distribution of Ether in this way um, with, with a pre-sale instead of uh, just by, you know, proof of, the proof of work mining like Bitcoin. Um, so Ethereum has been really criticized for this. Uh, after that, it's, it's always um, faced kind of, had, had this kind of a sort of Damocles hanging over its head with like regulators on whether it, it, this was actual uh, illegal, um, like it, this was a securities offering or not, like that was always in doubt until recently. Um, so I think that was another kind of big moment for it, like that decision to do ether distribution that way. Um, and also like deciding to do it in the US and uh, you know that took like a, a, a huge amount of time with lawyers to to decide all the like specifics of the sale. Also, big but I think less known is the Shanghai attacks. Um, so Ethereum it went through kind of this this phase of a, like huge tests to it, and one was the the Shanghai attacks when when it was uh, re receiving these. Um, a denial of service attacks and like spam from from hackers for like an entire month, 
Um, and then right after that came the DAO hack. So it was like a really intense period of like huge tests to the network. Uh, so I think these these two kind of attacks were were like pivotal moments as well. Um, and yeah, like it, it kind of like um, made made Ethereum feel, I think, kind of more worth it tested after after they happened. Yeah, and and just uh, it was reversed that the DAO happened first, and then the the DDoS attacks were shortly thereafter. So as oh, we, okay. yeah, <laughs> as we approach the five year anniversary of the Ethereum network being live, how would you characterize where Ethereum is now? It's been it's been incredible to see the the, the progress of of Ethereum since when I first started writing the book until now. Um, so when, when I first started writing, like I mentioned, it was like the main thing were, you know, ICOs and like enabling this fundraising mechanism. But now it's really enabling this more complex um, and like sophisticated financial system that goes beyond just fundraising and into lending, borrowing, exchanging um, and, you know, use cases that we never would have imagined on, on Ethereum. The birth of, of this new financial system is, is kind of proving that Ethereum is, is doing what it set out to do, to, to be this, this layer for an unlimited number of, of applications built on, on top of it. And so at this point, everybody's waiting for the launch of phase zero of Ethereum 2.0. And there was some chatter recently about the fact that that might be delayed until 2021 rather than coming mm-hmm. out later this year. Do you see any risks to Ethereum due to these delays? Risks? I, I don't, I don't think so because Ethereum has been waiting for proof of stake and ETH2 since like forever. <laughs> it's basically, you know, been um, the thing that they've been working towards since I think like 2016 or so, like proof of stake is coming, proof of, you know. So, um, and it's been able to, to continue uh, going forward even with all these delays. So I, I think and and I think now it's it's um, at a stronger place than ever to to keep uh, to keep surviving even without ETH2. Um, layer two solutions are are in, in a really good place. Like they're they're actually working. You know, there's um, actual DEXs uh, using zero knowledge proofs and optimistic rollups and um, OMG uh, network launched recently with its plasma chain. So you know, layer two scaling is actually a reality. And I think, I think that will really help bridge that gap between ETH1 and ETH2. So for that reason, and also for, for the fact that right now, the way that users are, are, are using Ethereum, it's been more of like whales using these uh, financial platforms to, to, to transact. And so far it hasn't required, you know, that much, uh, scaling. I mean, it, it has put Ethereum, um, to, to the test with like gas prices rising and 
the net network occasionally being clogged up, but it's not as bad as like CryptoKitties and, you know, like thousands of people just piling on or even like as crazy as the ICO days. Uh, I think it's like a much more uh, measured use use case of not like so many people using it at once, but it's like a, a more like sustainable uh, way of like transacting. So between those things, I think, you know, Ethereum is in, is in good shape to to continue working well um, until ETH2 comes. So we'll see. I, I still, you know, I, I'm not sure whether a proof of stake will launch this year or or next year. But the, yeah, the, there has been some. Vitalik is is really kind of pushing for for a launch this year, and like other like prominent developers are too. So we'll see what happens. But I think it's it's good. It's a good sign that they're they're focused on having it done like well rather, instead of like just pushing out something that's not ready. Are you watching any of these other competing layer one protocols that used to be dubbed Ethereum killers, but yeah. people haven't been using that term so much anymore. And do you think any of them have a chance of taking any market share from Ethereum? I possibly, yeah, it's hard to say. I think uh, so far we can comment on what's happened and um, so far it's been really hard to compete with Ethereum. I think Ethereum has a, a really great advantage of like a first mover advantage with um, a huge community like um, there's, I don't know, like thousands of uh, developers building on Ethereum. I think there's support saying that they're even more uh, Ethereum developers and Bitcoin de Bitcoin developers, and just um, the level of connectivity between Ethereum applications will be really hard to to replicate because of this like composability of of DeFi and and other applications that they all start working with each other. It makes it harder for a single application to move to another chain and just be there by itself. So there's kind of these network effects, the communities that are, builders are there, users are there. Um, so that's been, it's been really hard to compete. But that's not to say that, uh, you know, if any of these new chains launches and it's just like many, many times better than Ethereum technically and ETH2 uh, keeps being delayed and maybe layer two solutions aren't, you know, aren't fixing it, um, aren't fixing scaling uh, as, as you know, people hope, then yeah, I mean, they, they very, very well could start taking market share. We'll see. <laughs> and other than that, are there any other obstacles that you think Ethereum faces? I think regulation is always like, it's always a, a risk, um, especially if Ethereum's main focus is, is finance. Regulators are always going to be watching that closely. I think they, they haven't yet because it's still like DeFi is still uh, pretty small. Um, but, you know, with with two billion now, it's not nothing. I think what what kind of protects it a little bit is that so far it's really been crypto whales playing in, in, in these platforms. So you're not seeing kind of inexperienced retail users getting burned. But if we have some sort of like ICO boom type of frenzy where retail traders uh, come to DeFi, like to yield farm, and they, you know, are paying hundred bucks of gas fees and, you know, getting, you know, wrecked with their leveraged 
loans. Uh, you know, you could see kind of regulators raising their eyebrows and, and taking a closer look at this. Um, so I think that's that's um, that's one risk. I think what happened with with ICOs and what's happened in general with uh, with Ethereum and blockchain technology is that at least in the U.S., I, regulators realize that they have taken this kind of soft touch to allow innovation to to flourish um, because they really I don't think they want to stamp out this this industry and have um, everyone go somewhere else and like I don't know maybe China having like the be the center of blockchain innovation. So I I think you know what will likely happen is that there will be uh, regulators looking closer at the space. You know, one thing that interests me is when you said that the regulators have been having a light touch. There was a moment. Um, I'm just trying to remember when this was. I think it was about a year ago where I feel like the frustration from U.S. entrepreneurs with the regulators was sort of at a peak. Mm -hmm. And um, do you feel like that's changed? Because I think at that time, that's when a lot of entrepreneurs were saying, oh, yeah, people are leaving to mm -hmm. go to other jurisdictions. So do you think just that they were overreacting or do you think that things have calmed down since then? Yeah, I think... The, the peak kind of concern with re regulators, I think, came with ICOs. I think, you know, people people were moving to other jurisdictions because uh, U.S. regulators really took a stance there that uh, tokens can be securities and, and these sales are very, you know, are probably securities, illegal securities offerings. I think you know they were they were rightly kind of concerned the developers in in this space, but I think that's 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 subsided now. First, because I, I ICOs aren't being done in the, in the same way anymore. I think the space has matured and and realized that the way fundraising was happening in Ethereum wasn't really healthy. Um, I don't think the incentives were were placed in in the right way. Like giving a team of entrepreneurs millions of dollars right off, just based off a white paper on website um, and expecting them to deliver everything they promised after you already gave them all your money, you know, that didn't really turn out very well in, in, in many cases. In others, you know, they did. And, and we have like really good teams who raised money uh, in the ICO days, like building right now and, and, you know, some of the top DeFi projects raise money in the ICO days, but many, many others didn't and just like didn't do anything and ran off with the money. So I think um, the crypto space has really learned from that and matured and is seeking other more responsible ways uh, to, to fundraise. And I think that's, that's helping with uh, regulators as well. And so when you look back at all the history that you uncovered for your book, and you look at how far Ethereum has come, what's most surprising to you about the Ethereum story? Oh, there were many surprising things, I think. So, okay, so one thing that was surprising was kind of this clash of the like for-profit, non-profit. Non the, the other uh, surprising thing to find out was just that right now Vitalik is the the only one of the initial co-founders who is still building for for Ethereum, um, and everyone has like gone off and to do their own like um, other 
blockchain things or non-blockchain things. Um, so that was also surprising. I think, like I said too, the watching this new kind of financial applications ecosystem thrive uh, right now in Ethereum after after the the bear market when everyone thought Ethereum was dead has been like a, a really nice surprise as well. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, those, <laughs> those have been like the, the, the biggest surprises. All right. So in a moment, we will talk about the Defiant, DeFi, and crypto media. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Looking for a place to connect with thought leaders, innovators, and blockchain enthusiasts of every level? Welcome to Tea Quorum, a weekly virtual series about all things Tezos. Each week will feature presentations about the latest advancements, from baking and staking and developer tooling to DeFi projects and community content that will help the ecosystem grow together. This year, Tea Quorum will be opening up its podium to you. If you're interested in presenting, submit your ideas and the Tezos community will vote on who they'd like to hear from next. Sign up and learn more about the virtual series at tquorum.com. How much in fees are you paying for your crypto purchases? Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases, which means you can buy crypto with a 0% fee. Apart from your crypto purchases, you can also get a great deal on food and grocery shopping too. Get up to 10% back on Uber Eats, McDonald's, Domino's Pizza, Walmart, and many more when you pay with your MCO Visa card. No card? On the Crypto.com app, buy gift cards and get up to 20% back from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, Papa John's, and Domino's. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers till the end of September. Back to my conversation with Camilla Russo of The Defiant. So tell us about The Defiant. What is it and what do you cover there? Yeah, um, so The Defiant is a, well, it started out as a newsletter which I founded in June of last year, so it has a little bit over a year. Um, and I started this newsletter because, like I said, I was watching this incredible financial ecosystem being built on Ethereum, and I really thought it wasn't being covered at all, or, or at least very well, um, by even by uh, crypto media, and much less by, by mainstream media. Um, there were hardly even any newsletters focusing on DeFi at the time when I started the Defiant. So I really saw this incredible amount of innovation, growth, activity happening in the space. And to me, it was, you know, these, these uh, developers are delivering kind of the dream of, of crypto, like the cypherpunk dream of being your own bank and you know having your parallel financial system and they're actually building it and it's working and like nobody's paying attention. Um, so to me it was like it was a, an opportunity to come in and after you know researching and learning about Ethereum for my book and also having covered markets for for years um, at Bloomberg, I thought you know it's it's a good space for me to uh, come and cover. And I was just like fascinated by it. So. Um, I started this newsletter and at first I was, I thought, you know, let me try to do it daily because I think, you know, that kind of helps build an, an audience, that consistency, uh, but without really knowing whether I'd have enough material or, you know, what would happen. But I just like, I, I started it and, and yeah, like 
there was so much going on that I, I, I never I never was like lacking material to, to write a daily newsletter. And it grew really quickly. Like I had really good uh, response to it. People really were needing this uh, information source for DeFi. It, it kind of uh, evolved into more of a, I want to make it uh, into a media company for um, the open economy beyond the, just a newsletter. So I recently launched a, a podcast as well, um, looking to start uh, a YouTube channel soon. And I'm building kind of a, the Defiant website to like host all these things on like in one place. So yeah, that's my, my idea with, with the Defiant to, to build it into um, a trustworthy uh, content platform uh, for uh, decentralized finance. And I think kind of the, the difference with other uh, newsletters and, and people covering the space is that I really do want to bring my kind of my journalistic perspective to it. So I'm, I'm covering the space from the perspective and with the expertise of a journalist. And I do have uh, contributors who, who are also writing for, for the Defiant now. And I, you know, I edit their pieces with always with, with that in mind. I'm obviously, you know, super bullish in, in this space and my bias will be towards, you know, this is amazing, but always, you know, keeping the objectivism and, and the standards of that I had at Bloomberg, you know, like I'm, I'm not going to stop reporting the bad things that happened, the, the scams, the hacks. Um, and I think that's, that's it especially important in such a nascent space so yeah <laughs> and how would you compare doing financial coverage at bloomberg to covering DeFi? how are they similar and how are they different oh my god <laughs> <laughs> let's see it's obviously a, a much smaller market so there's there's a there's less to cover but at the same time it's like one one market I don't know because okay so so DeFi is just a, a global ecosystem and it's like all part of the same thing whereas in uh, covering markets for Bloomberg you had like very separate markets so there's um, emerging markets developed markets within emerging markets you have like like Brazil or like Latin America and Asia and like each country has its own specific uh, rules and systems and securities and they're all like in little cages you know but in DeFi, it's because it's like a global network, it's all one thing. Uh, so I think that's that's you know that's a little bit different. It's also 24/7, um, so it's not like a Bloomberg. You know, once the the market closes, you you can kind of like go home and not worry about anything. In DeFi, you can have hacks in the middle of the night, like on weekends, which is when they usually happen. <laughs> you know, so it's like yeah, you need to be on um, all the time. And I think this is, I don't know, like a very personal and more of like a colorful uh, statement, but I enjoy uh, covering this space more because I kind of can communicate better with uh, the people uh, building these things. Like I can relate better to them. So um, just to put it more concretely, you know, covering financial markets at, at Bloomberg, um, I was always in, you know, in a room with like, all men in suits in their like, you know, fifties <laughs> or whatever, just like old white men in suits. And it, it just felt like it was obviously just a job 
for them. Like they, they, they didn't really, there was like no passion for what they were doing. Um, and it's so different covering crypto, you know, and especially covering Ethereum and the DeFi community. Like there, it's much more diverse. So obviously still male dominated, but you still get women um, and female founders who are absolutely doing amazing stuff. There, it's a lot. It's a lot younger crowd, and it's so nice to be covering a space where people are actually passionate about what they're doing. I mean, and you can just, you know, see it. You know, come across uh, interviews and their product. They're like really putting their hearts into this. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, a big difference from covering traditional markets. Yeah, I, I relate to you on so many different levels uh, <laughs> and everything you just said. And how would you say that launching and running your own crypto media company compares to working for traditional media? Oh, I've been loving being my own boss so much. Um, so, you know, when, when I when I left Bloomberg, I always had like in the back of my mind that I would one day start my own thing. Um, and you know, when I was thinking of it, I was like, am I glamorizing being an entrepreneur and like starting, you know, having a startup and actually like it's, it's been amazing. Like I, I'm, I, I really, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I, I, I took that step. Um, but it's, it's obviously very different because you know, I'm doing everything. It's like, I'm, covering like I'm doing the journalism I'm also doing the editing I'm um, running kind of the infrastructure like you know like building the website doing the podcast like editing like making sure like talking to the substack people when the the site is down or you know like getting the crypto payments on board like all that kind of logistics that at Bloomberg there were like entire teams of people working <laughs> you know I had like nothing to worry about um, are all on on me now but it's really fun because it's like I get to think of bigger things like the strategy and like where am I gonna take uh, this this media platform and like what does the future look like and what who do I partner with like what sponsors do I take you know like all of like the, the business side of things uh, which I had no experience with before and like now I'm I'm doing has been really fun to learn and and it's exciting building my own thing so you know at, at Bloomberg I I often you know stayed really late uh, working on stories and and it was fine like it was still kind of my my work that I was proud of, proud of to deliver a story but now it's like even better because it's not just you know this one story but it's it's you know working towards my my own thing, you know, my own brand. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed the experience. And so are you are working directly with your sponsors or are you trying to do yeah. the, Oh, you are. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I took, I started taking sponsors, um, in April, like late April. Okay. But are you trying to do the church and state separation between business and editorial or? Oh yeah, definitely. I oh, mean, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I have sponsors who place kind of uh, banners or logos at the top of the newsletter, but all the content, I mean, that, that doesn't affect the content. I'm still like covering um, the spaces I would if I had no sponsors. Oh, right, right. Yeah, but yeah, I, I actually hired a separate person, so I don't even... Oh, uh, that's yeah, good. Yeah, but... Uh, yeah, 
I should do that. That that comes next. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm right now hiring more on the editorial side. So I think you seem to have built that out first. But but also I'm still working on my book. So our our timelines, we're probably doing similar parallel track things, but on different timelines. Mm -hmm. And so I was curious, who are you finding is subscribing to the Defiant? Are they people who kind of already tend to be in the industry? Or are you also getting people who are just interested in DeFi, but don't necessarily work in the space already? So at first, I I think it was mostly people in the industry. So I had... um, Tons of uh, VCs, like a, a lot of like the crypto funds, uh, subscribe to the Defiant. Um, all of the like big DeFi projects and Ethereum projects subscribe to it. So developers uh, from from these projects um, and like team members subscribe, and also like just traders, like users of DeFi platforms, are also subscribers. But uh, recently, I've I've seen um, people who are like more like adjacent to to DeFi and Ethereum subscribing as well. So not not so into in, into like the, the the core. So yeah, I, I've seen you know I I can tell from from I have this uh, subscriber chat on on Discord and and you know some sometimes. Uh, people introduce themselves and, and now I'm seeing more people who are just like, oh, I'm just starting to learn about Defiant Ethereum and, you know, excited to to learn with the Defiant. And um, whereas before it was just like more people who were already in the space. So, yeah, it seems like uh, we're getting kind of a, an influx of, of new new people. That's great. You also said in the Hidden Forces podcast overtime show that you think one trend that we're seeing in crypto media is people prefer to follow individuals rather than institutions. And I wondered, coming from a a traditional journalistic background, where obviously, like, you know, we try not to state our opinions, or we try not to become the story. How are you dealing with becoming more synonymous with your brand or your publication? Hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's been like a, a weird transition, and it, it's something that I, I I wanted to to do to to be able to express my own opinion um, and just be my own agent. Um, at Bloomberg, I, I kind of struggled with that, especially because I was obviously a lot more interested in in crypto and much more bullish in crypto than most people at Bloomberg. So I always kind of found that struggle with with my editors who like wanted to push the story one way but i was like no like that's that's not really what's going on um so now it's it's great to just be able to uh, cover this space how i see it and not have to like ask for permission to go to like all these different events and like even go to on on your podcast i would have had to like go through like three layers of of like permission uh so it's so great to just be able to say yes to to everything at the same time, like I said, because I want the Defiant to be a journalistic platform, it's not, you know, it, it includes my, my opinion, but it's, I try to be a lot more measured with it. And if I have an opinion, I'm always going to back it with with facts. It's not like, oh, I, I love this thing uh, because, because, you know, and, and you should use it. It's like, no, like, this is great because it has like it's a tons of volume. It has never been hacked. It has audits and whatever. Like I'm, I'm going to provide a more 
more substance to whatever my opinion is. Yeah, it, it's something that I'm still kind of figuring out what the, the right balance is of uh, like me being the figure for the defiant versus having kind of the brand uh, take the, the, the front stage. And I think it'll be kind of a transition that will just have to happen organically with time as I bring in more contributors and, you know, the, the defiant starts being the defiant and not like Tammy Russo's project, you know, um, but you know, we'll see. I think, I think for now I'm, I'm happy to be kind of the face of it and like pushing it and like use my, I don't know, whatever influence I have in, in this space to, to build out the brand. But I think hopefully, you, you know, with time, the, the Defiant will become a bigger brand than my own brand. And along the way, you've launched something called the Cami token. Tell us what that <laughs> yeah. is and how people can use it or earn it. Yeah. Well, I think it's just part of me testing these things out as I report them, you know, and this is something else that's different from reporting at Bloomberg, you know, because at Bloomberg, we were very restricted in owning the things that we cover, rightly so, I think, but that like was so strict that I couldn't even like, it was hard for me to, to, to own even a little bit of crypto to test all these platforms out. But now I, I have more freedom to do that. And I've been uh, using that to to test different DeFi platforms and NFTs and all, all this stuff. Um, so that's what kind of the idea of, of Kami tokens came from. I, I was covering, I, I wrote a post on uh, Roll, uh, which is the platform that uh, facilitates the issuing of your own personal tokens. and. At Bloomberg, I actually had wanted to do like my own ICO at, in the ICO bubble. Just like I thought it'd be like a fun story, like what it actually takes to do an ICO. But like, yeah, obviously I, I wasn't allowed to because like everyone freaked out. Like, you, you'll go to jail, you'll like, get a suit. So I couldn't do that. Um, but now uh, with with Roll um, and like these personal tokens, I was able to finally have a, a Kami token. And yeah, it was just like more of a way to test how these these things work. And it was like actually super easy. Like the like interface is just you know how like what what's your token's name? Like how how many tokens do you want to issue? And building kind of use cases for for the token. So I haven't been like paying that much attention to it. But my idea was that uh, people would be able that. That first, I, I I could reward my readers and audience with the token. So if people were um, recommending the Defiant or like tweeting about it or like tweeting about my book, uh, I I would send them Kami tokens. And then the the other side of the market would be that uh, Kami tokens could be used to buy things like a subscription to the Defiant. And I think so far one subscri subscription has been bought by June. <laughs> June and Wong, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it hasn't been like an exactly active market, but it's, it's been fun to test it out. I should give it more, more attention. <laughs> and did you do any kind of legal work to make sure that the different use cases you had for it didn't run afoul of securities laws? Well, I, I did, um, you know, talk to some to a couple of lawyers about like uh, personal tokens and where that line is. 
And you know, as as long as you're using them to to exchange like actual things, um, they're more like airline miles. But I think the that line is crossed when you're uh, promising like future profits that come from your work. Like when it's like more like um, a dividend kind of thing, that's where it it, it becomes uh, trickier. But if you're just you know using these tokens in exchange for a subscription or in exchange for like an hour of my time, then then it's um, a, like safer. <laughs> and I also saw you participated in some of the Gitcoin grant rounds. Yeah. Describe that process and what you've been getting grants for. I think what they're doing is is really amazing in, in enabling um uh, funding for for different uh, open source and like Ethereum projects. What makes the Gitcoin grants work is this idea that with donating uh, a, a little bit of of money of crypto, you can actually make a, a big impact. So that because of the the matching, um, so that really kind of incentivizes people to donate, even you know if it's one die, uh, because of like how the the system works. Um, you, you actually end up donating a lot more. So that's kind of generated this like feedback loop of like everyone in Ethereum uh, donating to, to these grants. And yeah, I started, I, I made the first grant in the previous round. That's when they opened it to, to like media uh, projects. And it was really great. Like I, I got uh, over uh, 4,000 die in in the grant, and I've been using it to compensate my contributors. So um, it's been like really instrumental. And then uh, this time around, uh, I also got close to uh, 4,000 die in, in donations, and um, I want to use that to uh, help build out um, a part of my website. Yeah, I think I think in in general the, the 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 whole kind of experiment in 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 these types of of funding rounds generates this like sense of community that you're all kind of helping each other, building for each other. Um, so yeah, we'll see. I, I think um, I'm doing it quarterly. Feels like it's helping these projects be like more more sustainable. In general, how do you think media companies can take advantage of crypto tokens or decentralized business models? Ah, that's interesting. Um, I think this, you know, there's a lot of work to be done in this space. I don't think anyone has like really figured it out yet. But, you know, like one of, of the like big ideas and kind of holy grail ideas for like media and crypto is is this um, kind of model where users pay, uh, like make micropayments for like reading single articles or, you know, this idea of like streaming content as, as you would stream um, music or video. So I, I think, you know, I don't think that's been achieved yet, um, but that would be like an, an interesting model to, to try out. Um, you know, it would require uh, kind of everyone being connected and very cheap transactions. So potentially like in some like layer two uh, channel or something, it, it could work out. Um, but yeah, th that'd be interesting. Um, Unlock has been, Unlock Protocol is uh, 
it, this project that's that's focused on like media subscriptions uh, with with crypto, and uh, they they've been working on on this idea of like unlocking content uh, with crypto. So uh, that's that's another way. For now, you know, uh, for me personally, it's it's been a way. Unlock has allowed a, a way to to give um, crypto subscriptions where you know Substack hasn't yet. So it's like very very basic, just like subscriptions, but with with crypto. But at least you know that's I, I've been able to implement that. Uh, but yeah, I think go, going forward, this idea of like streaming content is where crypto can make a big impact. So. Uh, let's now talk again about Ethereum because obviously we have this um, five-year anniversary coming up. You recently tweeted that the total market cap of ERC-20 tokens is now higher than the market cap of Ethereum. What do you think is the significance of that fact? Well, what this obviously means by on itself is that the economy being built on Ethereum is now more valuable than the token securing it. So it's more valuable than ETH itself. And, you know, that really signals the, 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 the amount of innovation going on, on on top of Ethereum. I mean, that's, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is, wow, ETH is uh, really undervalued because the like the platform should be more valuable than you know the applications on top, but you know that's that's a thesis that's that's a, it's a hypothesis that's yet to be proven. So it's been kind of the kind of assumed that in in blockchains because the the underlying layer one can now be made uh, valuable with with that with its own token that this this would allow the the like layer one and, and protocol layer to to gain in value as uh, applications are built on top and i think you know that's that's different from non tokens like from layer one protocols that don't have tokens uh like obviously uh the, the internet is like <laughs> the, the the best example and so the idea there is that if the internet like the tcpip protocol had had a token, that token would be more valuable than all of the applications uh, built on top. But because it, it didn't have a token, like nobody could actually profit from this network, right? And so that's the difference um, that blockchains are building to the table that um, now these layer one protocols can um, actually be uh, made sustainable and people can invest in these protocols and that these tokens will become the most valuable. So I think it's interesting that with um, tokens on top of Ether becoming more, more valuable, this, this theory is, is being challenged. So I don't, I don't really, I don't know if it's the case that, you know, that that theory was wrong and that really the tokens on top of Ethereum can be more valuable than Ether itself or that Ether is undervalued and it just like needs to catch up. Um, yeah, I, I wonder if it might switch back once we move to proof of stake or once Ethereum moves to proof of stake. Right. Yeah, maybe kind of the economics of proof of work aren't kind of keeping up with the actual value of Ether. Um, and once people start locking ETH up to, to stake, it will. We'll see. Yeah. And 
Uh, just going back to DeFi, there have been so many hacks in the DeFi space. How do you think about balancing your coverage of the risks against like who your readers are and, and the fact that they're interested in DeFi? Yeah, no, I, I think to me, covering the hacks is probably the most important thing that um, I can do because there everyone else is going to be covering how great the space is. You know, you have the projects themselves doing that. You have like their press releases, you have their tweets, um, you have like all these other uh, newsletters covering, you know, like kind of cheerleading for the space, uh, which they're great. But I think you need to balance that out with uh, a more kind of objective view and pointing out the good and the bad and the hacks are definitely the bad. So uh, I think you know, um, it's, it's really important for, especially for new readers to, to realize the level of risk that there is here. And there is definitely really high risk in, in DeFi from, um, code breaking, which it, it does, uh, to just the volatility of the market, how liquid it is. Yeah. There, there's, there's just risks everywhere. And, and I always say, you know, as excited as I am for, for DeFi and, and Ethereum, these things are, you know, DeFi is just like two years old, you know, how, how long, how, how many years did the financial system take to be as secure as, as it is today? We're just like in the very, very early stages. Um, this code needs to be tested. It needs to be audited. There needs to be some, some sort of like protection for users, I think. So, I mean, the main thing I, I, I say is, I encourage people to to check these things out, but but with you know money that they they can afford to lose. I think it's kind of the the safest advice <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And so for the next let's say year, do you have any predictions in DeFi, or are there any particular metrics that you're keeping your eye on, or mm. projects or trends? Let's see. Well, I think like value locked is, is like the main uh, metric that uh, people are, are looking at. But in terms of like trends, I, I'd love to see uh, more like DeFi becoming more secure. And um, I think that should be a, a big focus. And, and I, I think it is. Um, so there are projects like Nexus Mutual. Uh, building insurance for, for DeFi, others like open, building kind of hedging options for DeFi. So hopefully a, a big trend in DeFi will be uh, different ways to, uh, to protect um, traders and, and users. And um, another trend I hope to see, which I think has, has been very much missing, is identity systems. The ability to to have uh, like decentralized identity will unlock so many other uh, new use cases, which w might enable kind of um, greater adoption beyond crypto whales. Uh, and you know specifically the the ability of having loans that require less collateral collateral than they do now, because right now borrowing in DeFi requires you to put capital upfront, and so that right off the bat excludes a bunch of people who just don't have that, um, that capital. Um, so having some sort of credit system, some, some way of like verifying uh, payment history that will really kind of unlock so, so much more 
uh, value and, and use cases in the ecosystem. So hopefully that, that'll be a trend to look forward to. And what about Bitcoin on Ethereum? What are you oh, looking yeah. for Yeah, as you watch that? That's, that's such an interesting trend. Um, so yeah, Bitcoin on Ethereum has really skyrocketed. And it's been interesting to see the, there's actual demand from Bitcoin holders to you know, put their, their Bitcoin and on like smart contracts or deposits and, and using Ethereum tokens instead on, on Ethereum. Um, so I think this will be, this will continue to grow uh, as DeFi becomes more useful and secure. Um, more Bitcoiners will want to start using these applications. And I think that will be the case with, uh, with other uh, non-Ethereum tokens and even with like maybe like real like tokenized real world assets, there's this idea that Ethereum will start kind of sucking in assets into into the, the platform. Um, I, I think the first one is is Bitcoin, but uh, going forward, I'd expect all types of assets to start kind of participating in in DeFi. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely a fascinating space. I think it's really great that you carved out this niche to cover because you're right, it's easily one of the most interesting beats within the overall crypto beat. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been so great having you on Unchained. Where can people learn more about you, The Defiant and The Infinite Machine? Yeah, it's been so great, Laura. Thank you. I love the conversation. So uh, the Infinite Machine, you can order it on Amazon. If you go to HarperCollins' uh, website and search for the Infinite Machine, you'll see all the resellers there uh, beyond Amazon. Um, I'm uh, always on, on Twitter at Kami Russo, C-A-M-I-R-U-S-S-L. Um, and the Defiant is thedefiant.substack.com if you want to subscribe. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for coming on Unchained. Yeah, thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Camilla, The Infinite Machine, and The Defiant, check out the show notes for this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the shows on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. 